And uh, one of the things that I found out in, in doing the anthology, I did some, uh, people are more familiar with the, uh, the, the Space Force television show that came out right, right on the heels of the announcement. And, uh, you know, as a military brat, I wasn't that eager to watch that show because you <laughs> know how comedians can be. I actually thought, I actually liked the show. I actually thought they were, were reasonably... Um, you know, respectful of military culture and whatnot. Uh, you know, considering that it that it was a uh, uh, you know it was a, com- a workplace comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the most ridiculous things on that show was a scene where the Chinese set up a satellite with like like clipper arms and they cut the the uh, solar panels off of an American satellite. Well, it turns out that wasn't so silly. The Chinese actually have launched a satellite with that capability. And, of course, they say it's for maintenance and removing trash, and that may very well be. But if you have that ability, then you have the ability to stick up and cut the solar panels off of other people's satellites. The Space Force is kind of misunderstood. My guest, C. Stuart Hardwick, is the editor and even contributed a story in a new anthology, Tales of the United States Space Force. It features an impressive cast of contributing writers. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. C. Stuart Hardwick will clear up some of the misconceptions about the Space Force and how this anthology may inspire more to join or just simply enjoy the diversity of the stories. What uh, is interesting to me and really something that most people don't realize is that the actual Space Force started a few years ago, uh, and, you know, not in 2018, but actually before that. So, um, so you know, tell us about the origins of Space Force. Yeah, I, that was a surprise to me I, I, uh, as well. I first heard about the effort to create a Space Force back in, uh, I think it was uh, 2018 or 2017, when I was invited to be uh, to moderate a panel with uh, one of the people who's now on the Space Force and an astronaut. So I, you know, I thought I should do some research. And I quickly learned that the, the serious effort to create what was then being called a Space Corps actually started during the Reagan administration. Wow. And uh, it was, it kept going through, you know, both the Bush administrations, uh, at least, and it was under President Obama that they they finally passed the legislation to create it. And then by the time that made it to the Oval Office, uh, uh, President Trump was uh, was in the chair. So he got to take credit for it or, or the blame, as the case may be. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. I, I guess my question about it is, what exactly does the Space Force do at this point? Well, one of the things that led me to do the, uh, the anthology was questions around that. So when they started making announcements in uh, 2018, 2019, uh, th- there, it was clear that a lot of Americans had the same questions. If people thought this was just an excuse to build military space stations and send you know, Marines into space and nonsense like that. And, and, of, course, and, and of course, I knew better from my research and also from uh, at a conference, I met uh, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Gar- uh, Garretson, who uh, taught at the Air Force Staff and Command College, and I had asked him that. And uh, he, he said, well, wherever people go, you know, the police and the military are going to have to follow. But what the Space Force is 
mostly charged with right now is protecting satellites. And you might think, well, why do you need to protect satellites? Well, let's just look at some examples. So we have the constellation of uh, GPS satellites, right? Which were originally built to help get military troops to where they needed to be. And then later were used to get weapons to where they needed to be. But what a lot of people don't realize is each one of those satellites is an atomic clock orbiting over our heads. And those atomic clocks are now critical to cryptography. So every time you do a banking transaction, every time you use your ATM, you're using the GPS system, whether you realize it or not. In addition to, you know, their widespread use now for, uh, you know, ecological monitoring and, and cleanup and, you know, logist uh, logistics of truck fleets, everything from getting your pizza to your door to, to getting package delivery, uh, land survey, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So it's become really, really critical. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I found out in, in doing the anthology, I did some uh, people are more familiar with the, uh, the, the Space Force television show that came out right, right, right on the heels of the announcement. And, uh, you know, as a military brat, I wasn't that eager to watch that show because you <laughs> know how comedians can be. I actually thought, I actually liked the show. I actually thought they were, were reasonably, um, you know, respectful of military culture and whatnot, uh, you know, considering that it, that it was a, uh, uh, you know, it was a, com a workplace comedy. Mm -hmm. um, but... <laughs> One of the most ridiculous things on that show was a scene where the Chinese set up a satellite with like like clipper arms and they cut the the uh, solar panels off of an American satellite. Well, it turns out that wasn't so silly. The Chinese actually have launched a satellite with that capability. Whoa. And of course, they say it's for maintenance and removing trash, and that may very well be. But if you have that ability, then you have the ability to sneak up and cut the solar panels off of other people's satellites. Well, that that's that's amazing. But you know, the, the book um, you mentioned uh, the gentleman you met at the um, Air Force Command and, and Instruction, and mm -hmm. um, so he kind of gave you the idea of the book. Oh, I love your Star Trek mug. And yep. um, and he gave you the idea for the book. And now you actually have to go out and, you know, get the anthology. And, it, you know, I read that it was a lot of phone calls. Um, so how did you how did you where did you start? Where do you start with something like this? Well, Back in, uh, what was it, 2013, I was lucky enough to win the Writers of the Futures contest, which is, uh, uh, it, it, for those who don't know, it was a, a science fiction contest started by L. Ron Hubbard before he died, uh, kind of to rehabilitate himself, uh, so to speak. <laughs> and there's a certain amount of controversy associated with that. But the what I didn't know when I entered the contest, I was just a newbie writer. Um, and honestly, I never thought that I would win the contest. I just thought I would get some feedback from our writing, honestly. Um, but I won the contest and I found out, well, there's this writer's workshop associated with that. They fly you out to Hollywood. And um, we were taught by Dave, Wolver uh, Dave Wolverton, oh, yeah. uh, Tim Powers, who wrote uh, uh, the book uh, On Stranger Tides that was made into one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. That's I mean, right. heavy hitters. Um and you meet people like Larry Niven and Orson Scott Card, and uh, yeah. you know I could spend an hour. Um, so 
Because of that, I, I know people who at my point in the industry, I wouldn't otherwise know. And I can, I can call them and reach out to them. And then I'd done a few other projects. Um, when we were there, uh, Mike Resnick, the, the, at the time, the most awarded short science fiction author in the world, was giving me a hard time about not having joined my local writers guild. So when I came back to Houston, I did that. And that led to a couple of editing gigs. And that led to a couple more editing gigs. And so right about the time they created the Space Force, and I was talking to the Colonel Garrison about this, I was looking to do a, you know, a professional caliber anthology with a real publisher. Yeah. And it just so happened that I knew Tony Weisskopf at Bain Books and they're the biggest, you know, military sci-fi publisher in the country, certainly. Oh, yeah. So we had some some emails back and forth. And finally, at the International Space Development Conference in, I think that was 2020, uh, I was getting ready to leave. And she took me aside and she said, look, I'll, I'll give you some money. Just go ahead and do it already. Oh, all right. So, so there you go. You can't get any better than that. No, no, especially when they give you money. That's even better. Yeah, um, uh, not very much money. I'll point out, but it, it, we're it we're not in TV here. We're we're that's writers, right. so that's, we know how it is. That's usually the case, unfortunately. I mean, obviously, there's some. There's I can think of one. Arthur C. Clarke is no longer with us. So, yeah. did you deal with his estate? That kind of thing, or I, I did because I, yeah, I know his stuff is not public domain by any means. Well, Arthur C. Clarke has an estate, and they have uh, they, 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 that was actually easy. Um, they have, you know, because he is such a big name and is still in demand. And I knew what story I wanted, uh, which was a, a story called Superiority that he wrote about. Uh, he wrote it in the fifties in the wake of World War II, and I, I have a feeling it was kind of meant to be a cautionary against the U.S. turning to all these high-tech weapons where World War II had been won, you know, by Sherman tanks and fairly simple things. And we could have a philosophical debate about the relative merits of those two, but, but it's just a wonderful story. So I just reached out to them, paid the fee, no problem. The problem was coming up with the text of the story. So oh. I, I had to track that down myself. Um, and I, I knew, I know Larry Niven, so I was able to get hold of him and, uh, and he gave me permission to reprint one of his old stories, um, which is called uh, The Return of William Proxmire. Your your older listeners uh, are familiar with William Proxmire. He was not a fan of space uh, development. Yes, I, I remember him. <laughs> um, and then I just went down the list of people, people that I knew uh, who might be interested. Um, I had met Harry Turtledove who's famous for writing alternate history and, oh, and he I, I volunteered a story it. right away. I love so his got an original history. story from him. And then most of my authors are names that are lesser known, but they're, they're other winners of the writers of the future award, Martin Shoemaker, uh, prominently, um, um, winners of the Jim Bain award, which is put on Bain, Bain books. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the in fact, the first story I bought is by uh, Carl Gallagher, who actually works in the Space Force, uh, helping keep satellites safe. And his story is uh, about a, um, shall we say, a rather flatulent satellite that must be uh, 
dispensed with in a way uh, as to not create more space debris. And it was just a wonderful story. Great, great talent. Gregory Benford and James Benford, yep. David Brin, uh, Jody Lenai, Martin L. Shoemaker, just kind of going through the list. And yeah. you're, you're in there too. I, I am. I, I must confess, I, I wrote a story because I wasn't that confident in, uh, in my ability to, to get enough professional caliber words. Um, but when I sent the final manuscript to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Garrison, uh, as kind of a, a pre-reader, he liked my story so much, he insisted that I move it to the end because he, he thought it would be a good recruiting tool. Oh, so great. we did that. Um, I'm I'm very proud with the with the result. I, we we've got a, a good corral of, of top names. We've got fantastic stories from up and coming authors, and I think everybody's going to really love it. Now with technology today, I guess, I mean, in the old days, you would get it all on paper, but I guess you're receiving things electronically in various different ways. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, mostly everything is electronic these days, although uh, Tony at Bain did surprise me by sending an actual paper printout of the manuscript to, <laughs> to my house, which, um, that, yeah, that's old school. If, yeah. you haven't seen a, uh, if you haven't seen a manuscript like that, this is, this is like 130,000 words, so that much paper. Yeah, that's a lot of paper. Yeah. But I, I can see why, uh, you know, the editors at publishing houses, if they have something that works for them, uh, they got to keep doing it because they are just churning through the words. Yeah. Me, I don't do that. I do. I use modern tools. There is more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. You get all the stories together. Is there, is there any editing involved I think you, to make it kind of all fit? Or, or how do you approach something like that? Fortunately, most of the authors that I'm dealing with, they are regularly selling to analog and, you know, FNSF and venues like that. So they give me pretty clean copy. Um, I won't single out any names, but we did have a couple that had issues. Um, you may be aware that um, uh, James Benford had a stroke while, oh, while we were doing this. And God, so I was not aware, no. Sorry. And, uh, so we were a little worried about him, um, but they, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, Greg had the stroke. James hit, yeah, jumped he, in. So. Yeah, he finished. He finished. Right. Um, but it all worked out. Um, there, you, you always have a few, you always have a few things um, with a, a, an anthology like this, because most of the stories are, are relatively hard sci-fi. The main thing I was looking for is to have enough variety. Um I could have turned to, I, I could have told Bain to give me a list of their authors because they have a lot of, of really well-established military sci-fi authors. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have more variety. So kind of cold calling my friends and people I knew in the industry, I, I did have to make sure that we you know, didn't step on each other. But it, it turned out not to be much of a problem. Is this going to be available electronically too, speaking of electronic, as an ebook? It, it will. Um, it'll be in bookstores in June. It'll be available as an ebook, And my understanding is it'll be available on audio. When I talked to uh, Tony originally, she said that they have arrangements to take care of all that. Um, and, and that's great. I, I myself mostly read books these days on audiobook, either at the gym or on my bike. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people do. 
I mean, I would love to see different narrators doing each story. So it just gives it an anthology kind of feel to it. You know, I yeah. don't know if that'll happen, but I would put in a vote for that. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. Especially because there there is so much diversity. Um, we we have we have stories about um, you know that are more down to earth. What, what we did is the early stories are the most realistic near future, and then as we progress, they get they get a little bit more exotic. So we do have um, the story from the Benfords is is about contact with an alien probe. Oh, but the, cool. the stories earlier on are about, you know, people who are serving in the Space Force and, and have to deal with things that China is doing. And then um, there's one story uh, uh, about a, a drone operator who's called on to, to go into combat. Um, we have stories for the protagonist are women, stories for the protagonist are men, stories for the protagonist are kind of your traditional jocks and stories for not so much. So I, I could definitely see where uh, diversity of narrators would be useful. What's your view on uh, with the technology today, like movies that are set in space that are not necessarily in the future, but, you know, like coming up const uh, constellations going to be on Apple TV plus a really cool mind bending yeah. uh, series, by the way. And they actually reproduce the space station on a set. It was really amazing, and it, it looked very accurate. It was incredible. But what's your view on on how, you know, the technology is kind of caught up where they can really do these realistic kind of space, in space kind of movies? You, you know, it's interesting you say that, and I saw your interview about Constellation, and I, I can't wait to see that myself. Yeah. Um, but in watching For All Mankind, oh. one of the one of the things that I noticed, and I, I hazard to mention this because it's possible a lot of viewers might not notice, but when the astronauts go out on the moon, they're in lunar gravity. Right. But when they're inside the lunar base, they're on normal gravity for the obvious reason that it would be very expensive to film it other, you know, any other way. Right. And if you, um, I don't know how many people know this, but before the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, they, NASA needed a way to simulate one-sixth gravity. And the only way they could come up with it, there, there are two ways you can, everybody knows you can do it in a plane flying parabolas, right? D depending on how you fly the parameter, you can set the, the gravity wherever you want. But for testing, you know, at a lower cost and, and testing equipment and whatnot, what they did is they came up with this rig where the astronauts are hanging sideways from a harness and the angle of the harness to an overhead hoist pulls them against a, a ramp at their feet with the appropriate amount of acceleration, so a fractional uh, acceleration. And that way you can have people for a sustained period of time. So like you can put a guy in a spacesuit and say, go do this task and let's make sure that you're not gonna fall down and get stuck and that kind of stuff. Oh. Well, that's the cheap way of simulating a fractional gravity, right? You can imagine you're not gonna have a whole soundstage rigged that way. It's just not practical. And people have tried things using uh, helium balloons and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I think it is really impressive today how with between CGI and just clever use of practical effects, they they can get a lot of it is just the actors. Right? Yeah. You, you can sell whatever you want. I, I always say when I was a kid, we used to watch Star Trek and, you know, Star Trek 
has got junk from the dumpster spray painted a, a consistent color and stuck up on the wall and you believed it. Yeah. If the actors believe it, you'll believe it. Yep. Yeah, they use salt shakers, uh, I think, yeah. for, for some of the devices McCoy used to use. Um, yeah. yeah, the uh, the the plane you were talking about it was they shot Apollo thirteen on it, right? And uh, it's called the the colloquial name is the vomit comet for obvious comet. reasons. Yeah, because people would literally lose their lunch uh, when yeah. when you uh, when you do it. And and actually, what people don't realize is that you know when Ron Howard was shooting the movie, they didn't have a lot of time, uh, you know, doing it, so they would have to go up you know, up and down to get the zero G effect. So, um, I mean, if they were to shoot it now, they do it totally different for yeah. constellation. Uh, Nomi Rapace was on wires and, uh, or Numi Rapace was on wires. So, uh, that, you know, of course with CGI, you could just erase right. the wires. So, uh, and a lot of the flying scenes you see in superhero movies, they do it the same way. Right. So, yeah. I mean, CG totally changed, everything um at times i think it's overused but i it's a valuable tool and i think that's that's all it should be <laughs> as a as a hard science fiction author i i like it when it's used in 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 the way that supports good storytelling and, yeah. and as you say there i mean you know different people like different things and not every movie has to be the same thing but uh, yeah, it, it can definitely be overused. But when it's when it's well used, when it's masterfully done, it is really incredible what they can do. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's it is incredible. Uh, what's uh, what's up for you next? Are you do you working on anything right now? I am. Uh, I need to get some novels published. I've I've sold uh, short stories pretty regularly to Analog since I started writing, and I, I hope to keep doing that. But, uh, you know, I'm also a, I, I write a lot of science for the, the social media site, Quora. Oh, and cool. uh, one day I was surprised in my mailbox that I, I got a letter from uh, um, Spider Robinson. Oh, and wow. I had mentioned a short story sale and Spider had, uh, Spider liked my, my science writing and he, and he said, uh, you know, you make a lot more money selling novels. <laughs> yes yes that is so so true so that's not so a bad I, thing yeah he, he's right i got to meet him at worldcon the year after that and he was a really sweet guy where's this year's worldcon going to be at i'm not really is it in the states or um, is it probably not in the states no no uh last year it was in china this year it's in scotland oh scotland oh that'd be nice actually <laughs> if yeah. it's in edinburgh it's really nice <laughs> yeah it's great it's just you know a 17 hour flight from here so yeah it's it's a long trip it's a long it's not that easy from where i am either but uh, yeah i don't i i'd love to go but it's just not in the cards but well world, great world cons are nice though uh the yeah. first year that i went was my my first year after winning writers of the future and i i can't tell you how many people i heard who who were also like me who had never been to a con before who were running around saying i love world con everybody gets my jokes <laughs> yeah well the, the camaraderie in in conventions in general yeah. uh, it's like everybody speaks your language you don't have to explain things and and that's the beauty of it. And you strike up friendships. Some people met their spouses 
at oh, uh, yeah. conventions and you know our and lifelong friends so it's um it's a wonderful thing um i've always said that it'd be cool if if uh, places outside of conventions were like that were very people, true where people realize they have more in common than anything else and uh and and would strike up the same kind of friendships but that's a whole well, other we, podcast <laughs> we live in a very political time but yes. in spite of that my experience has been that it, it it really is a wonderful community in which most people most of the time do remember that they have more in common than they have uh, that separates them and i i've always said that uh, and, and you know partly it's winning writers of the future and meeting people like mike resnick who was very much into the whole, you know, pay it forward type of mentality. But I've always said that my whole experience has been like getting to the end of the yellow brick wall road. And instead of the wizard, you know, instead of a bo booming voice saying, ignore the man behind the curtain, the curtain opens and the man reaches out and says, here, son, let me help you. Yeah. It, it really has the community in the, in the sci-fi literature. Uh, it, it, it's just wonderful. Yeah, I think in general, it's it's true. It's just it's a really welcoming, uh, you know, community. And there's a fellowship that's there. That's really cool. And uh, I, I the biggest change for me is is seeing uh, how how it's gotten more diverse and it's only added to it hasn't taken anything away. And uh, yeah. I love it. I think it's uh, fantastic. Seeing families at conventions is really wild. Yeah. Something I wasn't Very much to so. see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But hey, that's great. I mean, another generation is going to say, "Hey, this is fun, Dad. I'm going to keep doing it too." Yeah. So I like yeah, that. What, what kind of world can we build together? I'll tell you. Probably a better one than we have right now. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Well, great to talk to you about this, so Stuart. I really appreciate your hard work in this, and uh, we're looking forward to the book and the ebook, and also. The audiobook's going to be a lot of fun, too. Definitely. Right. Well, thank you, Tony. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, same here. Tales of the United States Space Force will be available June 4th, 2024, wherever you get your books. And Sci-Fi Talk Plus continues its special offer for you, but also for your friends and family. There's over 900 episodes, almost approaching 1,000, actually, commercial-free, uncut, and now playlists that you can customize based on subject, whatever your interest may be. There's even exclusive video, even special podcast program in series like Rewind. The best part right now, it's free. Click on the link in the show notes for that free lifetime access. But this special offer will expire, so take advantage of it. And please, no anonymous subscriptions are allowed. This is Tony Talata.